Okay, good morning. And thank you for staying. You know, I, I just uh, sense uh, such a difficult text to wrestle through, and, uh, and so is Revelation chapter 13. That's where we're going this morning. So, what we want to do is remind you of where we've been in the prophetic study, uh, remind you of uh, where we're going next, and then begin to uh, really uh, address the coming tribulation um, when it happens, uh, who's involved in that, uh, the judgments of that tribulation period, ultimately um, leading us to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the establishment of His earthly kingdom, and uh, some of the judgments and some of the things engaged and involved in this whole prophetic unfolding. I find it really fascinating that uh, some of the things taking place in the news today are so fitting of Revelation, so fitting of Daniel chapter 11, so fitting of Daniel chapter 7, and the prophetic future that, quite frankly, takes place in that Mediterranean area of the world. And although the tribulation is worldwide, most of what is described takes place uh, in, in the nations surrounding Israel in that prophetic utterances of both Old Testament prophets and, of course, John and the book of the Revelation. We're going to kind of delve into that over the next couple of weeks and, and hopefully not get bogged down. Now, what I'm going to present to you today is, again, one of many views as to who the Antichrist is. We don't have the luxury of privilege, even in Peter, of spending all the time to unpack and look at every different view. So, what I will present to you is what I believe about the tribulation, and particularly today, the Antichrist, and give you reasons why I believe it, and then you can go sort it out for yourself. The identity, the roles of the Antichrist are spoken of in the Scriptures when it comes to the prophetic future, but it doesn't tell us who it is. It doesn't tell us all of those particulars, uh, probably because that doesn't matter Yet at the same time, it's in Scripture, so uh, there's an adequate explanation for these end-time characters and the particular role that they play, and it will give us some insight into combining both the Old Testament prophecies with the New Testament realities and prophecies of John and see how they mesh together to bring identity to these end-time rulers. Now, before we get started, we just remind you that we finished last time uh, in dealing with the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ a couple of weeks ago now, and that is the judgment of the church-age saints who have been raptured up into the presence of their King. There is an assessment of Bema Judgment on a raised platform to assess the things that you've done in your Christian life and existence, whether they be good or bad things, there will be reward and loss of rewards. We remind you, the loss of rewards isn't Jesus giving you something and then taking it back for something that you didn't do. The loss is the missed opportunities here on earth. The reward is for how we serve. We identified at least five of the, the crowns that are mentioned in the context of Scripture, tried to understand what those crowns came from or came for. Uh, all of this information, uh, Scott, I believe this information is available on Sermon Audio, is that correct? So if you want to listen to the lectures uh, at another time, fit it together, Sermon Audio is where the prophetic uh, teachings are, and eventually we'll provide an outline for you. But we spent a lot of time talking about that Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. 
Now, also during heaven at that particular time, and we're not going to spend a lot of time there, is also the marriage of the Lamb. Uh, the Scriptures uh, speak of marriage so clearly in both the Old and, and New Testament times. There was a betrothal period, an engagement period, a time in which the bride was presented uh, to, to her, her groom. That would be the, the rapture of the church. And, and then, of course, there would be that uh, celebration or wedding reception. I believe that that takes place in heaven with God's people during the tribulation period. Interestingly enough, there is a difference between the supper of the Lamb and the, the, the wedding feast that we speak of and the millennial kingdom. We're going to show you some of those differences when we get to the millennial kingdom. Uh, I had mentioned something. Someone asked me a question. I think it was you, if I can call you out here, uh, about uh, Israel being the wife of God. You'll find that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 32. God identifies Israel as his wife. He is their husband. Uh, Hosea, uh, the prophet, talks about uh, and, and depicts the unfaithfulness, the adulterous actions of Israel against their God and the consequences to that. But of course, in that millennial kingdom, there'll be the restoration of Israel and a celebration of that as well. I see them as two distinct separate things, when, and we'll deal with that in the millennial kingdom and, and not today. What I want to do today is uh, for you to take your Bibles and turn to a, a passage of Scripture in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And then we're going to deal with the time of the tribulation in a fast and furious kind of way. I'll remind you again that, that as we're dealing with this stuff, we're giving you a broad overview. We're not delving into all of the details and the complexities of the prophetic future, but Daniel is a significant book in, in understanding some of the things that John writes about in the book of the Revelation and some of the things that Paul writes about in his first and second epistles to Thessalonica. It will give us some background information. It'll give us some further detail. It'll help us understand what exactly is, is happening and taking place in the prophetic future. So, as you take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9, I'll pray, and then we'll jump into the coming tribulation. Now, Father, we thank You again for Your goodness to us. We thank You for the minds that You've given us. We thank You for the Spirit of God lives inside of us and helps us discern even the deep truths of Scripture. There are sometimes we come across places that are simply clear. We wrestle through that. I pray that, that we would be able to see the most important things in the text, that we would be able to celebrate the hope and promise that we have in, in Christ and in Christ alone. As we work through the rest of these things, I pray that we wouldn't become so distracted by those that we miss the message of the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Just as we prayed for our morning worship hour, I pray even here that we not get lost in the details, but as we look at these uh, end-time rulers and this coming tribulation, that you'd give us some insight and some understanding as we begin to, to connect the dots and compare Old Testament and New Testament passages to come up with an understanding of this coming tribulation. And I pray that you remind us, please, Father, remind us, those in Christ, that we're not here for that. Remind us as we go through these terrible judgments in the coming weeks, we're not here for that. So remind us of the hope that we have in Christ, the anticipation of the sound of a trumpet. 
the promises that we have, even as we rehearse this morning in Christ alone. Encourage us as we enter another phase of our prophetic study, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In Daniel chapter 9, we're introduced to the 70 weeks of Daniel. We could probably spend the next month talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel. We're not going to do that. But these 70 weeks are 70 weeks of years, so it's 70 weeks of seven years and and expands over a broad history. Uh, That history is recorded for us in the book of Daniel and in other places. But when we get to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, we reach the 70th week of Daniel. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the Word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, uh, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who has come to destroy, uh, who has come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations, and creed, and decreed. And he said... Make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who is made desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, there's a lot in that passage of Scripture that has to be unpacked in Daniel's prophecy has to be understood in the context of John's vision, but he identifies these 70 weeks of Daniel. And in the last couple of verses, he focuses upon the 70th week, that seven-year time frame that takes place. There seems to be a parenthesis in the countdown of these 70 weeks of Daniel when the Messiah is rejected by Israel and crucified this uh, 70 weeks of Daniel is, in a sense, interrupted and then picked up at a later date as God gets back to uh, His attention to Israel, and uh, that's the 70th week of Daniel. There is so much out there about the 70 weeks of Daniel and the, the numerology, the the succinct nature of Scripture, the specific events that can be even dated to talk about how this 70 weeks is to the, the very day. And then we're interested into the final week or the final seven years of that prophetic 70 weeks of Daniel. And it reminds us or describes us in the latter portion here that this 70th week will be defined by Verse 27, and he, not identified, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, for a period of seven years, and for half of that week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering for three and a half of those years. There's going to be a, 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 a turning point. There's a, 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 a middle point to that seven-year time period, three and a half years into it. 
He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So there's a seven-year time frame coming. It is when a covenant is made with many. In the middle of that covenant, it is breached. The covenant is breached. It is made desolate. That desolator then will, will seize control over the world at that point, the last half of the tribulation period, until that desolator is called uh, to the authority of Christ and, and an end is put to His reign at the second coming of Jesus Christ that ushers us into a millennial kingdom. Now, if it doesn't make sense to you, perhaps if we connect the dots, we can. Jesus speaks of an abomination of desolation in, uh, in, in this… Uh, discourse that he gives on end times in, in the latter chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. He describes uh, what takes place. Uh, Daniel does a little bit. Uh, the Revelation does a little bit. Paul does a little bit in Thessalon- his letters to Thessalonica. We have to put all of that together. So let's just simplify and move from all of the intricate details of the 70 weeks of Daniel to looking at the final week, that means the final seven years that is initiated by a covenant that is signed with many. And how does that factor into the tribulation period? Now, if in fact we're correct, and I believe that we are, that all of the prophetic Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament really focus on um, the land surrounding the Mediterranean or, or, or Israel, focuses on those nations right there, and, and we can be fairly sure that most of these prophecies are taking place, although there are worldwide implications for them, that pertaining to Israel, there's going to be this, this time of, quote-unquote, peace and safety because there is a covenant sign with all of the nations in the area and Israel that they're going to leave Israel alone They're going to let Israel do what Israel does. They're going to let them restore the temple. They're going to let them restore the the sacrificial system. And halfway through that, somebody is going to break that covenant. At the end of seven years, when that's over, um, Jesus Christ returns. So here's what I want you to do with me. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. There's this notion and thought that it's the Antichrist who, who uh, enters into this covenant agreement uh, for the protection of Israel and for the fulfillment of God's promises, at least on, on the surface. But we're going to find out that the Antichrist really doesn't have any absolute authority until halfway through the tribulation period doesn't identify who exactly this treaty is with, how many nations, and, and, and who signs it, but there is a clear, clear teaching in Scripture that after the rapture of the church, the initiation of the tribulation is this covenant treaty that the nations enter into. And the signatories would probably be most of those nations surrounding the land of Palestine, the, the, the nation of Israel, that, that Mediterranean kind of area. And in fact, Daniel will talk about the kings of the north and the kings of the south and, and the kings of the east. And the first question that comes up in a prophetic study is, where is America? Well, I don't know. Apparently, we're more full of ourselves than, than, than we ought to be. God doesn't even mention us there. 
Um, we fit in somewhere. I, I have an inclination where we fit, but uh, we'll, we'll get into, into that in a little bit. So there are a couple of movers and shakers who are probably part of this covenant in the beginning of the tribulation, who will seize control in the middle of the tribulation, and John reveals these persons to us in Revelation chapter 13. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 13. We will look at the beasts of the tribulation period. And you notice that I have beasts, plural. Again, uh, this is one view of many. I've studied this all the way back as far as I can remember. I, I believe that it is uh, a good theory, at least, a, a suggestion. Uh, I think you ought to consider it, but if you identify the Antichrist as someone different than I identify, uh, we're not going to have words over that, uh, other than you're wrong. But, but anyway, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So what does Revelation have to say about these Antichrist people that we always hear about controlling the tribulation period. Listen to what John says, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of his heads seemed to have had a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now, there's some really interesting language in there. There are some who have identified that in those initial verses, he is identifying the Antichrist but I don't think he is. I believe that in Revelation chapter 13, in these first four verses, he is identifying the place from where this end-time ruler comes from, not necessarily describing that end-time ruler. He doesn't call it him, he calls it it. He's looking at something bigger than an individual person, and part of this text helps us understand that we have to go back to Daniel to find out what's going on because he uses the very language that Daniel uses to describe his vision in Daniel chapter 7. Remember that vision that he saw this great image and, okay, you don't remember, turn to Daniel. Don't take my word for it. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up a great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, the first thing that we have to understand in this text is in this vision, Daniel is talking about it in terms of that which comes out of the sea. More times than not, when the Scriptures speak of coming out of the sea, he's speaking of the Gentile world and community. When he speaks of coming up out of the earth, he is speaking of the Jewish nation and, and identity, the Jewish people. 
So Daniel sees this vision of this vast humanity, the world as he knows it, and four great beasts come up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. And it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it, and After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and it was different from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, and this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So Daniel sees this vision of the Gentile community, the world as he knows it. And as we look at the interpretation of the dream, I, uh, he sees these emerging, budding world powers, the lion representing the Babylonian kingdom, in which he writes, the, the bear, the Medo-Persian uh, world dominion that would follow Babylon. And, and when they're displaced, it was Alexander the Great and that Grecian empire represented by the leopard. And then the fourth beast, of course, represented by the great and powerful Rome, the empire of Rome, who eats up all of the territories of these other world dominions and is different than the rest of them in its power and its reach in this Gentile world as we know it. It talks about the ten horns of this empire or, or perhaps the role of the Caesars or the different provinces of, of this Roman empire, uh, ten different uh, governors in different areas. And then there's a little horn that rises out of those governors and, and, and kind of seizes control. What in the world does that have to do with Revelation? Well, it has to do with this. Uh, some of the same language is used in both texts even the language about speaking great and blasphemous things, this, this, this first beast, if you would, in Revelation chapter 13, being empowered by the dragon, we would understand that to be none other than Satan himself. And in Revelation chapter 13, it says, who is like the beast and who can fight against it. Now, it seems to be that as we look at this passage of Scripture and, and, and wonder what, what all of this really means, it seems to represent, at least to me, the four successive world powers from the time of, of Daniel through his prophetic vision that ended, in essence, with that great and vast Roman Empire. What I believe that Revelation is talking about, if you flip back there just quickly, what I believe what Revelation is speaking of there is the revival of this vast world dominion power that resembles more than any of these other beasts that he listed, the Roman Empire, with its ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on his head. 
and it was like the leopard and like the bear, and, and, and the devil gave it great authority. Verse 3, and one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole mar- world marveled as they followed the beast. It seems like he's describing a worldwide consolidated power structure in the tribulation period that is established by the covenant that he speaks to. Apparently, there's some key players in this covenant, ten nations in particular, and they conspire to live and let live and, and give Israel some breathing space to kind of tampen down and quiet down that, that land of Palestine and the crisis that was taking place. And it is this world dominion power that derives its power and authority, not by the people, but according to the text, by whom? Satan himself. So this end time world dominion, this world power is empowered by Satan. He's pulling the strings, and I believe this is descriptive of this tribulation period. There is this consolidation of world power, if you would. I found it very interesting all the way back in the days of George W. Bush, you could even probably go back to Reagan, where we heard a lot about a new world order, and about a global government, and everybody living in peace and harmony. Well, let me tell you when that finally happens in the tribulation period. There's an empire governed by Satan himself that seizes control of that empire, and people marvel at that empire. They worship the dragon by worshiping that empire, and no one could fight against it. It is… it has a strangle grip on the world as we know it today, similar to Babylon and Medo-Persia and the Greeks and Rome, similar but different in that they will bring the culmination of all things and the return of Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Then there's a transition that I think takes place, and um, that transition is found in verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. You notice that the language seems to shift away from an entity, and now is more descriptive of a person. I believe that's purposeful. I believe that what what John is saying is in the end times, in the 70th week, there'll be a world power similar to that of Rome that exercises power over over the earth, more than likely that Middle East, but, but extended over the earth through this covenant with many. And as they seize this control and power, there's one who will arise within that ranking power that is identified now in verse 5, and he is identified in this way. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, do the math real quick. How long is that? Three and a half years. Daniel chapter 11, as well as chapter 9, talks about this little horn coming and taking over, superseding the rest of the ten horns. It seems like this is the guy right, right here. Three and a half years into this, through the abomination that makes desolate, we'll get to that, he's going to seize control. And no longer is it going to be this covenant with many nations. 
It's going to be this one individual who seizes control over everything that happens in the world. Now, there's some clues, I believe, in Daniel chapter 11 to understand how this takes place. And for those who believe that it is this antichrist or this beast, let's not even assign a name right now, who is wounded and comes back to life, God is the author of life, only He has the right to take it away. Satan can't give life, all right? He's not talking about someone who, who died and was brought back to life by, the, by Satan. That's impossible. God is the author of life. It, it's, I think He's talking about a nation. And in Daniel chapter 11, we see that in the middle of the tribulation period, At the abomination of desolation, armies from the north have come into Israel, armies from the south have come upon Israel. There are tidings out of the east that that the Chinese government is coming, and the armies of the north lay siege to Jerusalem, and it looks like the gig is up. It's done. This world power is over. The armies of the north are going to take over, and Daniel says something really interesting. In the middle of the night… The hand of the Lord, the armies of the north are destroyed without an army. God wipes them out. I believe that's what he's talking about, this deadly wound. This is over. The armies of the north are taken over. This ten-nation confederacy, they've lost their power. Uh, all of the armies are, are, are coming together and centering in Palestine, and God takes care of the armies of the north. And that's how this world power that looked like it was all but done is revived again. They're back in charge. God took care of the northern army, <laughs> and, and people are saying, it must have been the beast. It must have been the power of the beast. We have to fear the beast. Now, again, that's what I believe. Scripture isn't clear about that, but the first four verses of the book of Revelation chapter 13 can in no way be talking about a man. It's talking about an entity. And verse 5 is talking about a man. So, so when the armies of the north are taken without hand, read the book of uh, Daniel chapter 11 when you get home. Really fascinating story. It, it, it walks you right through the whole thing. When the army of the north is taken away and things stabilize a little bit, then this beast seizes his opportunity. And he takes charge three and a half years into the tribulation period, speaking haughty and blasphemous words and exercising soul authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And also, it was allowed to make war with the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Here's what's happening. People are saved in the tribulation period. The Jews are able to restore the temple, sacrificial system, and to live at least this 
sense of peaceful existence until all of the armies of the world say, this doesn't work for us. And all of a sudden, all of these armies begin to converge on the nation of Israel and to threaten and challenge this world dominion of this revived Roman Empire, for lack of a better term. And in the midst of all of that, God miraculously does away with the armies of the north. And this little horn rises up out of the ten horns. Remember, this was divided into to, to regents. And he says, I'm in charge now. He's empowered by Satan. He speaks blasphemous things. He makes war against the saints. He seizes control over, what does he say? Every, every, everybody. Everybody. He was allowed to conquer everyone and everything, and all authority was given. This beast over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. So some would say, well, oh, there it is. They're worshiping this beast. This must be the Antichrist. I I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that what John is describing in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, is an end world power. And then in verse 5, someone who seizes control of that end world power, unilateral singular control, the beast or the, the, the dragon, Satan, p- pulling, pulling the strings. And for 42, year, 42 months, he, he torments God's people. He torments the nation of Israel. He ceases worship in the temple. An image is placed in the temple, and everybody on earth is forced to worship the image of the beast. Follow me? Makes make sense? If you understand the Scripture, that's what's taking place here. That's beast number one. Look down at verse 11. And then he saw another beast. Beast number two, rising out of the earth. Now, remember what we said about the sea and the earth. The Gentile… So, it seems like the world dominion power is is a revived Gentile kind of power, similar to Rome, more vicious than Rome. The leader is a Gentile by nature, probably from the Mediterranean area somewhere. But this second beast now that he identifies is of the sea, which seems to indicate that he is what? He's a Jew. He's a Jewish descent, again, in that land of Palestine. So beast number two is different than the first beast, and it has two horns like a lamb, yet speaks like a dragon. Two horns like a lamb. That's interesting language to describe this beast. But he speaks like a dragon under the dominion and authority of the evil one, Satan himself. He is not causing worship to the true God, but taking worship away from that true God, and we'll see, directing it to another place. So, it seems to me that there's two end-time rulers there in cahoots, kind of pulling all the strings 42 months into the tribulation period. This second beast, verse 12, exercises all the authority of the first beast and his presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. I find it interesting that beast number two seems to be the worship director in the tribulation, for lack of a better term, right? He is directing all attention 
to the worship of this image set up in God's temple, this abomination that makes desolate that we read about in Matthew and other places of Scripture. And the second beast directs worship towards the first beast. Follow me so far? Keep going. It describes, it describes him a little bit further for us. Chapter 13, verse 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed, this second beast, to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast slain. And also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has this mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. So, we have a second beast, the first one coming up out of the sea. No one is to make war or able to make war against the beast. What, what does that mean? Well, not only is this first beast a political power and entity, he's a, he's a military power. He becomes the most powerful military man on the face of the earth. And his control is exercised by his iron fist, by his, by his armies. Beast number one in this worldwide empire, halfway through the tribulation, that seizes control as a political military dictator of some sort. And you have to do what he says because he has all the power, literally. Beast number two comes out of the, out of the earth, probably of Jewish descent, exercises all the authority of the first beast, performs signs and miracles, is like a lamb, yet has two horns, and calls all of the world to worship the image of beast number one. And the number was 666. Interesting about beast number two. He's not a political military dictator, although he has all the same power as beast number one. Beast number two is an economic dictator. He controls who buys and sells and who eats and who doesn't. But he's also a religious dictator. He decides who you worship and decides what the consequence is when you don't worship who he tells you to worship. Now, let me ask you a question. Which one is most fitting of someone who is coming in the stead of, in place of, or imitating of Israel's Messiah? Be beast number two. Like a lamb. Like a lamb. Jesus in his ministry did signs and wonders to bring validity and affirmation to his message and ministry. Beast number two does signs and wonders to get people to follow him and do 
what He tells them to do. Beast number two directs worship. Jesus Christ always deflected worship in His time on this earth and always directed worship back to His Father. Did, did you notice that? Here's what I think takes place. The Antichrist is beast number two. Beast number one, call him uh, world dictator. You can call him… Uh, I, I was taught under a man who called him the, the Roman prince, the one who sees control over this revived Roman empire. He, he dictates politically and militarily, but in cahoots with this beast number two, they control every aspect of the world, and beast number two is given control and oversight over the economy and over worship. And all of them together, both beast and empire, direct worship away from God towards these entities in the abomination of desolation and make everybody worship. And if you don't, what happens? They kill you. They kill you. They either starve you, beast number two, or they kill you, beast number one, because he has all the political might and power and the military to back it up. I believe there's two separate antichrists. Now, we could go to Revelation, or excuse me, we go to Daniel again, and we can see that beast number two seizes control at the same time that beast number one does, 42 months into the tribulation period, halfway through. Why is that 42 months, 1,260 days, by the way? Did you know the Bible gives us even the days of His reign? Why is that so important? In my opinion, it's so important because the abomination that makes desolate, the time when all of this changes is when this, this world empire survives the military scare from the armies of the north and gets a second breath and seizes control, seizes the opportunity to, to grab control of everything that's happening on earth for the next three and a half years. It's beast number one and beast number two out of the book of the Revelation. And the wound that was healed is not Satan bring back to life a dead man. That is impossible. It's impossible. Only God can do that. It is this covenant treaty with the powers that be that is given a reprieve when it looks like their power is going to be taken away from them from the armies of the north. And God says, nope, that's not my plan. And He kills them in the night without hand. In other words, He doesn't use another army. God says, no, no, that's not my plan. You're done. You're out. And all of a sudden, halfway through, 42 months into this, these two entities step up and play the major role and what's happening in the tribulation period. Now, just quickly, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul said, Listen, you're not living in the tribulation period. Why does he have to say this? Because some people were saying that they missed it, and they were, they were entering into this time of God's wrath. Paul said, I told you something different. Remember what he told them in the first letter? You are spared from the wrath that is to come. Some other people came in and said, no, you're not. You've got to be here. 
You got to go through all of this. And Paul said, that didn't come from me. Let no one deceive you, verse 3, in any way. For the day will not come unless a rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is straining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Remember, we covered this a couple of weeks back. I believe that that restrainer is the church that is now raptured. He's not in the way. The church is not there anymore. This plan unfolds by a signing of a covenant and proceeds by this this wicked individual seizing control, and it is only then, when this entity is out of the way, the rapture, that the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. Don't you remember what happens when Jesus comes riding in on the second coming and just destroys His enemies? It's the beast that He's talking about. It's these guys in Revelation chapter 13 that He's referring to. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they might believe what is false. People actually believe. Beast number two. They believe that He's leading them in the right direction. They believe that He's directing them to worship the, the, the one true God, but, it, but it's false and it's wrong and it's delusional, but they believe it in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's what happens. The rapture takes place. These end-time characters are alive at the rapture. Why do I know that? Because three and a half years in, they seize control. So they can't be just born, and they can't be children. They've got to be alive. They're probably part of the covenant, but they're not the initiators of the covenant. They're the signatories of the covenant. They seize the day halfway through the tribulation in this crisis that God takes care of. They place themselves in prominent positions, beast number two causing the world to worship beast number one, the political military dictator, and beast number two being given all the power and permission of beast number one to control the world's economy and worship and the consequence for not worshiping beast number one. And they dominate the next 42 months of the tribulation period until the second coming of Jesus Christ when they finally realize who's really in charge. You don't have to think that I'm right, but I've given you something to think about. Who is the Antichrist anyhow? In place of Christ is the one that directs worship, the one who controls worship, the one who does signs and miracles to validate worship and the message that he's speaking, but his power comes from the dragon. And he's going to wreak havoc. You want to know the good news? We're gone. We're gone. You don't have to worry about it. Everybody's worried about it. Here's what you ought to be concerned about. We're, we're a little late. 
what's happening in the Middle East today can well be setting the stage for what happens in Revelation chapter 13 tomorrow. The Middle East is in flames again. There's talk about how do we solve this? How do we tamp this down? How do we, how do we deal with this? And there's going to be some empowered people of Satan, some movers and shakers with smooth tongues who say, we're going to set a covenant. We're going to enter into a treaty. We're just going to let bygones be bygones. We're all, we're all just going to live through this, and everyone's going to say, peace and safety, what a wonderful time. And then on the first day of the next 1,260 days, these guys say, no, we're changing the rules, and we're in charge now. Who's really in charge? Satan himself. Again, the good news, we're not here. We're not here. Who is the Antichrist? Father, thank You for this time. As we return uh, to this uh, text in Daniel 11 next week, help us to kind of put the pieces together, and help us to be comfortable not knowing for sure, but help us to be faithful to Your Word, though. And always, Lord, keep it foremost in our minds why we're even doing this study. to be live, living lives aware of the coming of a Savior, feel the press of urgency to reach a world that is without Christ today and facing these terrible, terrible things. And maybe even more importantly, to purify ourselves and live holy and righteous lives in this present age being ready to give an answer to any man who asks the reason of the hope that is in us. Help us not to get so bogged down in the details that we forget that ultimately is you moving the pieces of the world in place to bring about your perfect will. May we find comfort in that, and may we be reminded that we're not here. And may the peace of God be with us. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen. See you later.